Welcome back, Cal and listeners. This is Methodical Millions, episode 13. So, Cal, with the whole COVID situation and the uncertainty in the markets, I thought it'd be a good time to talk about financial crashes. And I think what makes this topic interesting is that especially people who are not necessarily high risk, it's something that perhaps scares a lot of people and is worth paying attention to. So let's have a conversation. What do you know about financial crashes? Maybe what are some famous ones? What are your opinions? You know, at this point, with all that's happened throughout history in the financial markets, it's kind of inevitable that it'll happen every few years, maybe every seven, eight years on average. And now with the world economies being more related to each other, when one market gets affected, it affects really almost everyone else. So a couple months ago, actually, from now, we had quite the crash in the financial markets because of the COVID situation. So what happened is because everyone's staying at home, businesses shutting down, people getting laid off because there's not enough business, no one's going shopping, no one's, no one's traveling, no one's doing anything. So all the major businesses have been affected and trickled down into even the smaller businesses and affecting the economy. So what happened is the value of all these businesses have dropped significantly, some even wiped out and going bankrupt. And that obviously has affected the global markets. Now, without going into too much detail, these are unprecedented times in the sense that central banks have been stepping in and trying to stimulate the economy and support businesses and try to provide money to prevent a recession from happening or prevent a complete destruction of the financial system. So now it's actually going back up. But again, it's up for debate whether it's artificially being pumped or not. But again, we've seen that huge crash. And it just happens every now and then. It happened 2015 with China, 2016. Big, big impact in their markets there. It happened 2008, 2009, when the mortgage-backed securities in the United States, the whole collapse of the banking financial system and affected other countries globally. It happened in 2000, the dot-com bubble happened in 87. and goes back all the way to, if I'm not mistaken, I think the first or one of the earliest ones that I know of would be the tulip bubble, I think it's called, in the Netherlands around the 17th century. And that's when there was a craze with people having the tulips. They were imported from Turkey at first, and then eventually the value of tulips kept on going up, and people started putting all their life savings into buying and selling even fields of the thing. And then eventually someone decided to say, you know what, I'm going to cash in and I'm going to sell what I have. And from then onwards, the prices started dropping and it ended up crashing. So caused a bubble and even the government stepped in and said that to prevent a complete crash, they would buy, I think, 10% of the face value of what the tulips were trading at to provide some sort of liquidity there. And if anything, that dropped the prices even further. So they keep on happening. And I think as investors, we have to account for them. We have to expect them. And it's just part of the system. Yeah, it does throw a wrench into everything. And at least with the most current one, we're seeing some crazy high unemployment numbers, right? So Definitely, at least in the U.S. and Canada, those numbers are probably, I don't know, 10 to 30%. And if you talk to people, that means one in 10 or one in three of your friends are out of a job. So it's insane. And 
a lot of people argue that the financial ramifications of this haven't been yet realized, mostly because we run in quarters and a lot of businesses, I think, had a head start in January and perhaps February to have a successful quarter. But now with a full quarter in COVID, you're going to see the true financial statements, the true impact on retail businesses coming up, anything from airlines. And that's why you see these huge bailouts from the government. So I'm not the expert on how those work, but it's interesting to think about. It's almost like it's all a game where someone steps in and said, okay, this is not exactly how it works. Here's some money. And I think it's definitely in the billions or trillions of dollars, which is an insane amount of money to think about for the average person. We'll never likely see that in our lifetimes. So the scale of this is so, so huge. Cal, why would this be a different moment in time with respect to the stock market? Like we did see a bounce back and who knows if it'll continue or reverse back down, but why not? see a crash like 08 and 09 that kind of took, I believe, a year and a half. Why is it reversing so quickly? And why wouldn't the feds just pump money in 08 and 09 into saving a lot of the businesses that went upside down? So in 2008 and 2009, it's a completely different situation in the sense that that was more of a collapse in the financial system. Okay. So what that means is a lot of banks were selling these derivatives, what they call collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities, complex product that basically lumps some loans and sell it to investors. Now, the problem is they were able to provide a lot of subprime loans, bundle them and give them a rating of investment grade. Even big hedge funds would look at it and say, those are AA, AAA ratings, they're investment grade, so they're fairly safe. So I'm going to invest in these financial instruments. So what happens is the banks are able to provide a lot of loans to a lot of people. Most of them were subprime. And obviously, knowing what subprime is, people who don't have the best of credit taking large loans, a lot larger than what they can afford at higher interest rate, paying basically interest only at some point and not really covering any of their principles. So what happens is, eventually people started to default. When that happened, they end up not paying their loans and these products ended up losing value tremendously and caused a tire crash in the financial system. And then those people who end up taking those property and trying to sell them to salvage what's left of those defaults were not be able to sell them at a fair value. So if we actually did see a fall of Lehman Brothers during that time. And there's huge insurance companies like AIG and they have other big banks as well, Merrill Lynch and whatnot. So after the fall of Lehman Brothers kind of showed a big warning that that will happen to the rest of them as well. And effectively, that's when the government stepped in to provide a bailout. Obviously, when the government does that, the point is that they're investing, hoping to basically support them and get something out of it in the future. While now, it's very different than that because it's not a collapse in the economy. It's not a collapse in the financial system. It's a health issue. And up until that point, coronavirus appearing, 
the economy was pretty strong, at least the U.S. economy, the largest economy in the world. And China was doing very, very well for COVID-19. And fundamentally, the economy, there's nothing wrong with it. It was pretty strong. Currently, with COVID-19, it did affect the economy, but the economy was not the issue here. So that's why it's a very, very different case and something we haven't seen before. Yeah. So speaking to the 2008-2009 financial crisis, there's actually a really good documentary I like, and I think it was narrated by Matt Damon, so a pretty big name. It's called Inside Job. It's from 2010. I'm sure you can find it on most streaming services. And I really, really liked it. I thought it was cleverly put together. So a shout out to that. Go watch it to get you up to speed on that. So you brought up a good point. There were bailouts for that crisis as well. And it's interesting to think about how some funds or larger banks were saved, some weren't. So these are kind of economic policies or measures put in place. And sometimes I guess it's the luck of the draw who gets saved and who doesn't. But it poses a larger question about the validity of our economy as a whole and what does that mean for people kind of navigating businesses and investing. I think it's worth talking about because this could have, as we talked about, a wipeout event, you're on an ocean, on a paddleboard, that could really mess things up in a way that's not really favorable. So I'm glad we're having that conversation. I'd like to ask if that's okay. So if there are merits under which companies can get bailed out, it's kind of a slippery slope, I would argue. So what happens to, I think there's some major airlines, things that are tied to national defense or some other countries, it could be US or maybe China, Brazil. You have very large, almost nationalistic corporations that are so embedded in the GDP or the economy of the country that the government has a vested interest in not seeing it fail. I think you can use Samsung as an example in Korea. When you have these really large corporations that basically are tied to the government or the well-being of the country, I think the lines are more commonly blurred between how money flows through. And I don't want to call it a rigged system, but the governments do, I believe, work hand in hand in seeing the companies do well, whether it's funding or contracts and you have preferred business dealings where maybe otherwise they would bid to a company that's doing a better job or a cheaper job. I mean, I've seen this with SpaceX. So another Elon Musk company, shout out to Elon. So with SpaceX, for years, they fought to win contracts with the US Air Force, with NASA. And once they started to get traction, I think they went to court because they were not being treated fairly in terms of getting these contracts. And they were clearly, I'm talking 10x cheaper than the competition, arguably better capabilities for doing a lot of these satellite deployments, etc. And they weren't winning those. So it's an interesting question to think about how embedded are governments in corporations and the economy as a whole? And what effect does that have in your investing decisions? Is it a safe bet? Is it not worth thinking about? Al, what do you think? You bring up very good points. And to be honest, with the current situation, when it comes to the markets right now, it's a very confusing time. There are a lot of experts, let's say, that 
have very contradicting views of what's supposed to happen, what's going to happen, what should happen. And in my personal and humble opinion, I don't think really anyone knows for sure, which creates all of this uncertainty and volatility. And But what is clear is the U.S. Federal Reserve has stepped in in a way that they haven't done before and really helped prop up the market. Now, a lot of people say, obviously, the market does not represent the economy. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I personally thought, at least, that there needed to be some sort of correlation at one point. So, again, I'm not the expert, but it begs a very good question with what you just said. What is the vested interest of the government? Obviously, having a strong economy is perhaps the most important thing for any government and keep it that way and support it when needed. What are the repercussions of what's been happening, meaning the Fed right now buying into ETFs, which has never happened before in in history, and buying into high-yield bonds and basically risky and junk-grade bonds? It can turn out well eventually, who knows? But it is a big risk. And I came across an article that pointed out that before March, the balance sheet for the U.S. Federal Reserve was around $3.6 trillion dollars. And up until the end of May, it was around the $7.1 trillion. So in a matter of a month and a half, their balance sheet pretty much doubled. It's enormous of how much money has been pumped into the system. And there's the argument of inflation and the dollar losing its value in the future. And it gets a lot more complicated, but it makes you wonder what happens here. And for those who don't know, what should I do if everything's collapsing, everyone's losing money? Well, that's where you have people investing in what they call safe havens, right? The US dollar is considered a safe haven because it's a very stable currency. But some people think that gold is a safe haven or some other commodity would be a safe haven. So again, that's up for argument, but very, very challenging times. Yeah. Speaking of currency, about the US dollar and I don't study it too closely, but I've heard those outlier examples of inflation of currencies. So I know the Venezuelan currency went through hyperinflation and there was a food shortage, I think, a couple of years ago. People were buying Bitcoin and following the Bitcoin space a little bit closely. I did hear about that. So people were using Bitcoin appreciation as the more stable currency to do that. And it makes things interesting back to the argument of what's backed by governments, what's designed to succeed and what's designed to fail. So when you have innovative currencies like that, I know a lot of banks kind of regulated against it. Countries like China at the time, I'm not sure about the current time, but Bitcoin was banned at one point. So I think there is an intertwining of government and economic policy and tools that are designed to do well and not, which is why I like entrepreneurship and startups because at least in North America, there's not too much protectionism against starting a new business. And you really could design the best tool out there, bring it to market, and you may see adoption. So I really, really enjoy spending my time there and and working on that. So we talked about inflation and competing currencies. I was listening to another podcast actually about finance and When you hear about the feds pumping money in, a really good point was brought up, which is why don't the feds, which is essentially 
arguably tax dollars, I believe it was phrased, if the U.S. taxpayers are buying into prop up economies, and I'm not going to use ETFs because I don't know them that well, but let's use companies as an example. So if a company like an airline is being propped up with tax dollars on the public markets, why isn't that turning into equity for U.S. taxpayers or the the U.S. government? Why doesn't the business become U.S. government owned? And I'm not saying 100% ownership where they have to get in the business of running businesses, but why don't they have a 10 or 20% stake and have that pay dividends to taxpayers? So you were talking about balance sheets. Could that not just be the balance sheet growing through stock appreciation? We see that V-shaped recovery that everyone's talking about. If you print $3 billion and put it into the markets and then it's seven next month, I mean, it sounds insane, but that's the kind of recovery we saw. Is that maybe not the case of the new value of these securities they've bought? Yeah, it's a good point. But the thing is, the feds aren't buying into individual stocks. What they're doing is they're buying a lot of bonds. They're lending money to businesses hoping to get the money back with interest or on very low interest rates right now with the interest rates dropping to basically zero. Let's say they bail out an airline company. They're not really buying into their individual stocks. So they're not owning the company. They're not investing per se. What they're doing is they're lending money to save it. That's why the feds don't own an airline company or a hotel chain or an automotive company. They're providing the liquidity to the market and by buying those bonds and pumping the money and then the money finds its way eventually to other ways. And a lot of people, what they're doing is now is they believe the stock market is an indication of what would happen in the future. Let's say it happened a year from now. So people are with it being under 10% from its all-time highs right at the moment. So people are saying that once we have a vaccine, once we have a solution, things will get back to normal very, very quickly and perhaps even in better shape after that. That's the speculation. I have my doubts with that, but I'm just one single retail investor, as you like to put it. So who knows, really? Yeah, it's a lot to navigate because there's a lot of moving parts that we don't really typically see. And Although you're probably technically correct, I think, again, I'm paraphrasing what the argument was, but if you take capitalism at face value, which is someone has the opportunity to take $100 and start a business, start a lemonade stand, start a taxi cab company and build an empire, they own the risk too. So they own their leverage, as we talked about, they own their business model. And in the case of a downturn, it sucks, but that's the reality. So if you have cash flows that run out, who's going to bail out all the small hair salons and restaurants that are going to go under? And I think the argument was it's not fair to the average American or Canadian. And why are the bailouts so liberally thrown around for these larger companies and everyone else has to fight for survivability or closing up shop. I have personal clients who have seen actually been affected by this COVID situation and they're closing businesses. So I don't know whether it was necessarily stock buying, but I think it's a question of fairness. So that's kind of 
a good thing to think about, which is why I brought up the first point of what's the interrelationship between airlines and the government or these larger businesses? Because if there is favoritism, is it really capitalism in that sense? What do you think? Yeah, this is when some people would say capitalism works up until the point socialism steps in. So I really don't have much to say there, but you bring up very, very good points. And the thing is, it really comes down to the policies and the stimulus that each individual government is proposing or implementing for their own countries. So in the case of the United States, they've provided a lot of money for small businesses to help them with these current situations. And They'd have very lax terms, if I'm not mistaken. I read that for those businesses who applied for it and got accepted, they would be able to forgive the loan or most of the loan if 75% or more of it was paid for salaries. So I wouldn't say there's a complete lack of support there. However, when you're talking an economy that's based, like you said, providing this opportunity to everyone and anyone who has and wants to do it, you're talking an absolute enormous amount of money that is required. Whether it's fair or not, up for argument, I think at this point in time, maybe the government would look at too big to fail kind of thing, just like what happened in the financial crisis of 08-09, that we need to save the big companies because they have the most employees, because they affect the economy the most, because a lot of things rides on their shoulders, and maybe that's what we need support, but we have to support the small business as well, because we're in this together and most people are working in these small businesses yeah i think the argument for governments doing this is that they would lose their status or power in the world and ultimately governments are designed to do that to look after countries and help them grow and there's a correlation to how we talk about personal finance and business so that part kind of makes sense. And again, the scale is so massive that it's hard to kind of comprehend and understand all the moving parts. So it's more of a conversation of just start to think about all this stuff. So personally, what I would advise if you are kind of running into the situation, we've covered the basic stuff in personal finance, just good habits regarding money that way, cash flows, income opportunities, and you almost have to get very creative, especially if you're on that main source of income and it gets pulled out from under you. That can be stressful. What about businesses and startups? I heard a bit about the dot-com bubble and it was basically a lot of exuberance where companies had paper valuations. And what that means is they would be worth $300 million on paper with an idea and not really a product. And because of the future anticipated returns or potential of these companies, people thought, oh, well, they got to be worth 300 million today because they'll be worth 5 billion tomorrow. So it's a bit of a pyramid scheme or artificial growth story. And that's where the danger comes in. So whether it's people being over leveraged on mortgages or tech startups, I think that's where things start to fall apart, which is People get into riskier and riskier investments and plays, and that's when time eventually catches up to everything. So that's why the mantra of doing honest business in life or building actual products makes sense because you can't outrun time. It'll catch up to you. 
long term, you don't really fool anyone, whether it's your balance sheet or your financial statements or just competitors. You can't just play pretend for a really long time. So what would a startup do today in this modern time of financial crisis? So I've seen a lot of really small businesses actually cut employees, manage expenses because we had this shutdown where it's insane. Like the whole economy stopped. It was a pause button. Stay at home. Here's a couple thousand dollars. Have a nice day. And I think Cal, you made a good point, which is how long will this go on for? And the stimulus makes sense short term if you think about the short term goals. So have people stay employed. Although due to a health crisis, we're all staying at home. Let's put the pause and not close down everything. Let's kind of wait it out and fight for a vaccine. And back to the time equation, I think this is the tipping point of whether this was a good idea or not, these huge bailouts. Will there be a vaccine sooner than later? So hypothetically, we get back to normal in September or maybe by the end of the year. I think that's more of a realistic early time frame. Not that that's the actual time frame, but let's use it as an example. If we're back to normal by December, somewhere in between, you'd probably need time to get vaccines sent out. Maybe the governments in North America could afford to bail out companies and write people serve checks. But what happens if this continues for an extra year? Or there's the second wave, as people talk about, do you reclose all the businesses all over again? And how sustainable is that? So we talked about sustainability. Does the government have unlimited money? I don't know. They would run into a case of inflation. So it's a lot of moving parts. And things like stimulus and liquidity, I believe in. That's kind of how a lot of loans work. And if you ever want to do renovations on your house, go to school, you do get offered these types of packages too. They're just with fixed interest rates and not necessarily grants or benefits. They're usually loans. But the opportunity is there. So everyone wants the economy to do well. There's a mutual vested interest in seeing that happen. And we'll see where it goes. So back to the startup. If you're working on a product, you're either raising money or you've got, let's say, I don't know, five employees and you're making money. What happens if your clients are small businesses? You might not actually have any customers anymore. They might be pulling the plug on spending their expenses and now you're out of revenue. So you could have revenue declines. You could have deals fall apart where you were trying to lock in some fundraising. The mantra in the tech world is to have cash on hand and it's to manage your burn rate. We've talked about that before. It's how much money are you spending every month before you run out of money and you have to close up shops. So let's use an example. Let's say $10,000 a month for some easy math is your burn and you have 60 grand in the bank as a business. That means in six months, you're going to go out of business. So what would you do? Cut your expenses in half, take a reduced or no salary. You're the founder. Now you've doubled your runway as it's called. You can survive for 12 months while you figure it out. And this is actually a balancing act a lot of startup companies do, which is how do you balance growing, building a product and not going out of business? And somewhere in between you're raising money. And although it's a unique moment in time, I did hear a really good quote I like to close off with, which is fortunes are actually made in the down market, 
and collected in the up market. So think of it as an opportunity to grow new business, to take advantage of an opportunity that has emerged to reinvent yourself. That's what I would say the optimistic view and the smart view of making use of this time. So I'm typically an optimist. That's how I like to view things and go out there and make it happen. So with that said, we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks for tuning in. That was Methodical Millions, episode 13. If you'd like to follow future episodes, you can catch us at methodicalmillions.com or info at methodicalmillions.com for episode feedback. Thanks all.